Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Brendan here with Mark, Vet Gurus, episode 142, June 26, 2020 vetgurus.com. Go there. Stay there. Stay a while. Come back here. Listen. <laughs> talk, talk to you next week. How are you, Mark? I'm feeling very punchy with that introduction. I'm feeling like, get it out there. Do it. I'm a bit, I'm a bit punch drunk, yes. Um, so that's the news. Um, well, actually, no, that isn't the news. That is the chit-chat. Um, we haven't got any chit-chat, Mark, because I'm going to jump into something you wanted to chat a little bit about, and that is my news item which is good and bad isn't it it is a queen's birthday honor to a veterinarian that we both know well mark and Not that is former know, we know him and respect him and we all know him as Schultzy, don't we um a former zoo's south australia vet so he's one of the original zoo veterinarians in Australia, and well, still is, it's still around. Um, and conservationist receives the Queen's Birthday Award. So, for those of you who listen overseas, may be wondering what the hell is is this award, or what are these awards about? And you will talk a little bit about that in a sec, won't you, Mark? But Dr. David John Schultz, Schultzy as we all know him, received the Member of the Order of Australia Medal in the recent Queen's Birthday Honours. And um, the bottom line is once a year um, awards are given out um, and these are sort of going back to our colonial roots and the Queen gives out to all the Queen's um, minions give out these awards, Mark, and um, I'm sure you're going to go into it in a little bit more detail, but <laughs> it's recognition of 54 years of dedicated service to veterinary care, well-being, conservation and research of wildlife and 54 years of wearing shorts only um, because Schultzy is very well known as being a person who basically used to wear um, shorts and sandals, didn't he, or, or thongs um, or flip-flops, as you call them in other places in the world, um, for much of his work in life, didn't he? He's a bit of a character and still is, old Schultzy, and um, I met him very early on in my zoo veterinarian career, Mark, um, when I went to a Wildlife Disease Association conference, and Schultzy attended all of them, as he probably still does. I haven't been to one for a few years, and um, yeah, he's a character and an excellent zoo veterinarian, so good on him. Um you want to talk a little bit he about is, the awards? He, don't I was going to say, I do, I do. He's a, a um, you know, a, a leader in our profession, a raconteur, and um, someone I hugely respect. And and this is my point, Brendan. Um, a, uh, a recent uh, one of our previous prime ministers, Paul Keating, who lived next door to my um, grandmother, he said that he would decline such an award. Uh, because um, because he would uh, he was just doing his job, um, and there's been numerous prime ministers since uh, the Right Honourable Paul Keating who have accepted um, Queen's Birthday honours uh, for doing not much more than their job. And my claim is that for people like um, Schultzy, who 
who've gone above and beyond and made achievements in areas um, that are not generally celebrated. That's the point of these awards, these honours lists. And for people who are politicians or, um, you know, um, heads of department or just doing their bloody job and are re- really well reimbursed, remunerated for it, um, giving them awards debases the award that should be given to people like uh, Schultze and others who, you know, are slogging in the back room and not getting the glory and uh, going above and beyond and deserve the award, Brendan. That's my tip. Um, I don't want to well, see any more politicians get it. I don't argue with that at all, Mark. And, uh, well, funnily enough, what, an ex-politician, um, an ex, ex um leader of um, one of the parties received one of those awards, didn't they? Um, a very prominent one recently. So I don't think that that's going to change, Mark, unfortunately, with some of the political awards because they are, well, the Governor-General's official secretary is um, the person who's involved with it, isn't it? Um, because the, the way it works or the sort of structure of it is the, the Queen, who's called the Queen of Australia, who is the Queen in England, Queen um, of England, um, but she's also called the Queen of Australia, is the sovereign head of the Order of Australia, Mark, while the Governor-General, I'm reading this off Wikipedia, um, as you can probably tell, while the Governor-General of Australia is the principal companion um, of it and the Chancellor of the Order. Um, And the appointment process is often quite political, isn't it, Mark? Um, Although the good news is... Ordinary Australians like you and I, Mark, can nominate people, can't we, by filling in a form and submitting it to Government House in Canberra. And um, I don't know how the process of whether they just pick people out of the hat or if people um, are nominated enough times or enough people um, assign a petition, that's how they decide them. Um, Do you have any inkling how it works, Mark? I do think it is quite, um, uh, you know, there's committees and then the, uh, and, you know, there's quite an extensive submission of resume and achievement and, um, and, uh, and, yeah, it's no uh, small um, uh, effort to get to the point where you achieve one of these awards unless you're friends with everyone on the committee. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think we've, banged on enough about this, but you need to keep submitting my name every year, Mark, until they <laughs> give in. That's all I can say. So what's your... We will um, wear them your, down. We'll wear them down. Yes, my story yes. is also a government-focused one. Um, it's uh, um, an announcement by the, um, the Chief of Veterinarian of the UK uh, that um, the United Kingdom is now avian influenza free now you know brendan i uh two words um influenza and anything to do with birds um those two venn diagrams i'm right smack in the area where they overlap um and so i was very interested to read this um the interesting thing for me is that um as someone who is interested in the welfare of birds and the welfare of humans, um, is that this is largely a uh, bit of a political announcement. The UK has been previously declared avian influenza-free in April 2016, but the nature of um, migratory birds across Europe means that there's a real risk 
um, very frequently of the uh, the virus being returned to the flocks, and it has big impacts on the um, very big impacts on the trade um, that the poultry industry in the UK, the countries with which they can sell their produce to, um, is significantly in, influenced by the presence or absence of avian influenza. Um, so it's interesting that, uh, you know, between December uh, 2016 and June 2017, there were 13 cases, um, confirmed cases of avian influenza in poultry kept in the UK um, and uh, in the way of these sorts of diseases that have an influence on trade, the uh, Animal and Plant Health Agency puts significant restrictions on um, movement to limit the spread of the disease um, and, uh, and usually there's associated um, culling of the affected birds. And uh, there's also a significant restriction on um on, on uh, bird gatherings, you know, shows or um, in the UK they do things like have, uh, um, you know, the shows they have in the, um, the country in the UK will often have uh, birds of prey um, sitting in there. So all those sorts of things are banned. Um, so it's a good thing that the disease is not there. It's a good thing that UK is upping its biosecurity. Um, but, um, geez, I hope they're able to keep it out for the well-being of the birds as well as trade in the UK. Yes. Good luck to them. Let's hope <laughs> it stays out and doesn't come back. Do you think, um, do you, yeah, do you think that coronavirus has, um, has like, all that um, biosecurity, which, you know, obviously um, for us is, um, uh, you know, a thought that we have every day about um, biosecurity, but um, do you think it's been raised in the consciousness of the, you know, the average citizen wandering down the street, uh, the masks and hand washing and and uh, um, all that sort of stuff means that they are much more aware of this stuff? I think so. Um, the worry is the sort of rebound effect that people get sick of you know, being isolated, get sick of being told to wear masks or to use disinfectant and hand sanitizer all the time, and then they get cranky and start to kick up a fuss. And um, it reminds me of a post on one of the veterinary forums that I sent to you um, recently. You showed uh, me that post. Where vet in the US? I, do you think? Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you? Um, do, it's a, it was a bloody interesting post, and um, but I, I, I've, I have a bit of a contrary wise view of uh, of the circumstances at the moment because um, we our clients have been outstandingly tolerant, um, and they use the the hand wash, they wait outside, they um, they understand the people that are coming in are associated with, uh, you know, euthanasias or whatever. Um, they, our clients, I really want to sing out praise to our clients because they've just adapted and uh, and really we, we've had one time when someone was, a, we had a client who um, actually came uh, to the door like coughing and spluttering and um, was a bit offended. Was a bit offended when, uh, with uh, like, I mean, 
where our Facebook page has a list of things. If you're doing this, don't come to the clinic, organise alternate transport for your animal. Um, and um, and when the staff said, look, sorry, we can't take your animal, you, you, we can't even come close to you, they did get a bit upset. But they were the, and that was right when this whole thing was starting. It was sort of in the first week. I estimate we're in about 12 weeks of this problem at the moment um, and in that first week we had one person who blew up but since then people have been awesome in Australia so I, I feel for our um, colleagues overseas who have to deal with people that uh, that maybe are adapting less well uh, to the, the uh, those biosecurity changes Brendan. Yes well we've had a similar process with ours that vast majority of our clients have been fantastic um we've had the odd one who has been a little bit annoyed but but nothing more than that yeah so yes okay let's jump into our main story mark our main topic which is a follow-on from a couple of podcasts a fair few months ago mark podcast number 26 and a podcast number 35 which was dental disease in rabbits part one and part two so for those of you who want more information on this general topic of rabbit dental disease head over to vetgurus.com and search for those episodes and download them and listen to them so we wanted to talk about this week mark something that you mentioned to me probably two or three years ago that would be a good topic and we finally got around to it and that's marsupialization for rabbit dental abscesses uh, and um, I think it's a, a very good topic to summarise and to go through the process of, of what you and I do and I'm sure we'll have slightly different takes on our approach to these conditions or these um, this surgery um, and our techniques, Mark. So w- let's jump into it. Um, you know, what, what's your definition of marsupialisation um, for these dental abscesses? It, it's a pretty simple process, um, the idea, isn't it? Well, I'm glad you qualified that because um, <laughs> it, is, it is a simple process, the idea, um, but sometimes it uh, it can be. Um, look, I'm, I'm, it's a really interesting topic because um, I'll be completely honest with you. There's uh, a... Um, a uh, a level of emotional investment I find with different um, procedures, um, and and there are some procedures that uh, that I would uh, routinely do that might occasionally fail, but I go, oh yeah, that that's what happens with that one. But for some reason, I am so invested in a lot of these rabbits that I really take a hit when um, when they don't work. So it, it while the idea is relatively simple. Um, the practice might not always be the case. And um, the idea is, is as you said, quite simple. Marsupialization, create a bloody hole and um, and open the, the wound up. Um, it, I, I, when I first learnt this word in, used in this um, sort of form, I... Um, I was a bit critical because marsupial, you know, marsupialization means to create a pouch, um, to create a pocket. Whereas, um, and you may be different to me in this regard, Brendan, but um, my general technique um, is much more, probably more accurately described as sorcerization, um, where I am, um, you know, create a crater 
at the site. Um, so uh, I sometimes wonder whether marsupialization is the right word. Well, correct or not, that's the word we're going to use. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you took the bait there. Yes, uh, the theory is simple in that we're leaving a hole there. And why are we doing that? It's because these cases are these. So these are these, going back one step, these are these horrible dental abscesses that we see in rabbits, tooth root abscesses, where we have a chronic horrible infection there and usually a big swelling um, on the mandibular area or, or maxillary region. And it has been found in a large percentage of cases that marsupializing them um, is not only a reasonably technically it's it's a relatively um, theoretical <laughs> theoretically um, easy technique to, to get your head around, um, but the actual approach and the case that you get stuck into in front of you can often be a bit a bit more troublesome than you think of um, at the time. Um, it's compared with some of the other techniques that are used. So, so the the aim is to remove the source of the infection, and in the vast majority of these cases, it's a tooth root that's pushing down in the maxillary, in the mandibular region, or up through the maxillary region, and we have a tooth root abscess. So we have an osteomyelitis going on, don't we, Mark? So the aim is to treat the source of the infection, not just drain the abscess and scoop out all that gunge and debride everything. It's trying to remove the focus of that. And I had a revisit of one today that was a um, a good success case, a, a rabbit that had a, a ventral midline mandibular tooth root um, abscess. Um, and it tracked down to the left-hand side, um, first premolar tooth, the first cheek teeth on the left-hand side of the mandible. And um, we'd gone in there several times. And the last time I went in was a few um, a week and a half ago, and I did find a, a necrotic bit of the tooth root mark. Um, and at the revisit today, it was looking fantastic. So I think I found the found the source of that one and we marsupialise that one there. So um, the other techniques, um, instead of straight marsupialisation, leaving the wound open and flushing the wound that have been used in the past for these, are um, antibiotic impregnated beads. Um, so making up them. Um, and I have done that Previously, many years ago, I haven't done that for ages. Um, and that's a technique that's used commonly in human medicine as well for infected joints, for instance. Um, and a lot of veterinarians still use that um, technique, making up antibiotic impregnated beads that elute high doses of antibiotics into the affected area. So you debride the abscess, you try and find the tooth root or roots that are causing the um um, abscess in the first place and removing them um, and then you would implant these antibiotic impregnated beads and close that wound over. Um, they go on parental antibiotics as well um, and the theory there is that they will, those beads will um, elute high doses of the antibiotics locally into the affected area and help um, and that has been successful. The difficulty with that is technically it's a a bit of a pain to do, um, both making up the antibiotic beads um, and also um, using them. It's a lot simpler, in theory, to do a marsupialisation um, for them. And the other technique, Mark, that I used at one stage that worked quite well, but it was quite labour-intensive in that the animal had to come back every week or so to have it um, um, re re retreated, was using 
plastic gauze swabs and cutting them up into strips um, and dribbling antibiotic onto the um, gauze swabs and then packing the uh, the wound with the gauze swabs and then closing it over, Mark. Um, and then every every week we get the rabbit back, usually as an outpatient, put a little bit of local anaesthetic on that area, um, cut um, or remove the um, suture that was placed to keep the swabs in and then um, remove those swabs and put another lot of swabs um, in there. Um, so And that worked quite well, and that was based on a technique that was, um, I'm trying to think of the person who, who wrote an article on it, on probably 50 or 100 cases, and, and they found it was working quite well. And it did work quite well, but it was... Um, time-consuming um, for, for, for the vet and also the patient and the client and that they needed several revisits, whereas in theory the, the mass-supervisation, if it works and, and you get it right first go, um, you may be lucky and you may not need to do that again, Mark. Does that make sense? Makes Have you used those other sense. techniques? And, and I think I think you, you've yes, used the antibody-compregmated beads at st- some stage, yeah. Yeah, and I, so, what I find is that I, I, even now, I have a tendency to try and, um, you know, uh, uh, tailor the treatment to a specific location. There are some locations I think that the beads probably do a better job um, because you're almost certainly going to have to close a particular um, wound up. Um, but on, I'm no longer use them on the. The jaw, I think, um, uh, marsupialising them uh, creates the best circumstance, uh, the balance between um, uh, client care, the number of revisits, the cost involved, um, uh, the, the success rate. Um, are, at the moment, I think um, those mandibular ones uh, creating a, a marsupialised pouch is the best way to go. And I think for veterinarians who are keen on having a bit of a go at some of these cases, the marsupialisation um, process is certainly something not to be scared of. And I think one of the key points that I always recommend to vets who are, who are starting to do the technique is is try and be bold. Um, and when you are making that marsupialised wound, we are suturing the skin open um, to make that crater, as you mentioned, Mark, or the, or the pouch there. And don't be afraid of leaving a big whopping hole um, in the face in fact, of that I'd, rabbit. Um, yep, I'd go, go even ahead. further, Brendan. I'd say um, you've got to do that. If you, if you um, the, the mobility of rabbit skin and the excellent uh, ability for it to heal means that if you make a small hole, it's just going to fill over, it's going to granulate in too quickly and re-epithelialise before you've removed the infection. You've got to be, you've got to be, it's mandatory that you are very bold. You, um, If you're going to do this, the success depends on your ability to get in there. And I think one of the techniques I find successful in um, teaching this to uh to you know inexperienced surgeons is to suggest to them that they treat it like a cancer and they treat it in two stages rather than starting the surgery with a view to how you're going to finish it just cut the bad stuff out like it was a cancer don't uh, panic about how much you have to remove and then once you're confident you've got all the 
uh, necrotic bone, the, um, the purulent material, the affected capsule. Once you've got all that out, the um, you often ext- I find I often end up extracting the tooth through the hole in the um, in the mandible through the you know we'll dissect the abscess around, get it down to the surface of the bone and then start dissecting the bone out and the tooth will come out through that hole once you've done that um, then you're much more likely to be successful and you can think about how you're going to sew the skin down where you're going to sew it to how you're going to set the hole up um, so that uh, um, it doesn't cause very many problems and it's easy to clean and the reason why we're doing that is no matter how aggressive you are with the debriding, if you close that wound over, you've still left, almost certainly left some of the those nasty bugs in there. And the aim of the mycelialization technique is we're leaving that um, wound open and then we are flushing that wound. Um, and there's various different products that we will then be flushing it with and then the client is shown how to flush the wound usually twice a day is what we recommend um, with with various potions or solutions that we'll talk about in a sec um, and that aids in keeping it flushed and keeping having an antibacterial effect and an, even even a mild astringent effect mark um, with with what I tend to recommend these days um, with the flushing and um, it it maximizes the chance of of trying to um, heal that wound completely no matter how much parental antibiotics you use you still need to do that topical sort of treatment and flushing and that's the reason why we marsupialize these wounds um going back one little step it's i think it's very important to show the clients a pretty horrific picture of what the marsupialized wound looks like before their animal goes through that procedure and i have exactly that in the consult room (laughs) a picture of a a marsupialized mandible and a a huge whacking hole in in the side in the face of a rabbit um, because you need that you need to explain to them and and show them that hey it's going to look pretty damn ugly um, for that first um, week or so if not a bit longer and um, they need to be on board with the fact that it is going to have a big hole in the side of its face. Um, so I think that's a good good thing to do, show them what it's going to look like um, and it avoids that shock factor a little bit. Um, they still get shocked no matter how, how, how many times you show them that picture when they see their rabbit come out from the surgery with, a, with an extra orifice um, on its face. Um, so what do you flush the wounds with, Mark? Those are my supervisor ends. What are your thoughts on different products that are available? Well, we're, we're basically saline, uh, um, uh, you know, promoters. We we like um, using copious amounts of warmed saline um, to flush them out. We tend not to put antibiotics into the flushing solution. Um, we find uh, that um, I have uh, used a dilute povidone iodine at times, um, and it, as you mentioned before, has an astringent action, and I think it also has a... Uh, an, uh, an uh, epithelial uh, migration inhibition effect. It, it tends to stop the bloody aggressive march of those uh, epithelial cells across the surface, which you know seals over the wound. Um, so uh, probably saline and povidone, dilute povidone iodine are our primary ones. Um, what about we you, Brad? Yeah, we tend to use, or I tend to rec- use or recommend the the dilute iodine um, in 
5% plus of the mark um, because I just have had good success and continue. Touchwood to have pretty good success with it. Um, and I think it exactly, as you mentioned, has that astringent effect. It um, has a bit of an antibacterial antiseptic effect as well. And I just get the client, we make it up dilute for the clients um, in a, around about a 1% to 3% um, of the, non, the non-soapy version, the concentrate version, not the scrub solution iodine, I think it's important. Um, and we just demonstrate to the clients how to blast, you know, a good 10 mil um, syringe full at least um, twice a day into that wound. And I actively encourage the clients to try and prevent that whole closing over. So don't be afraid of before you're about to blast the next lot in um, to to gently um, use a bit of cotton or gauze or whatever and, 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 and wipe away the scunge and the gunge that sort of accumulates as it's trying to close over. Try and keep it open as long as you can. I think it's an important factor with it, Mark. Brendan, I've got a leads, question, yep. one yep. quick question to you. Um, where I've read articles about uh, um, honey, manica honey. Um, have, you, have you had any um, experience with the sweet stuff? Yes, so... I think we've spoken a little bit about the honey variations and their antibacterial properties or not um, on a previous podcast, Mark, and, and whether or not that particular brand of honey does have proper uh, more antibacterial effects than the normal honey. Um, and I think part of the use of honey in wounds is the whole um, sort of osmotic um, effect it has on it um, um, regarding t- the, this sort of thick slurry that it that it forms there. Um, yes, I have used the um, honey in the past. Um, I, I haven't had fantastic success with it, um, and I do find that no matter how thick you use the, the honey that's there, it does warm up with the body temperature in there and it does end up sort of oozing out um, and, and dribbling out, and you end up with this sort of sick um, sweet swelling, um, smelling material oozing out of the face of the rabbit there. And I'm always a little bit concerned that then if it's with a companion rabbit that's going to groom that area, that it's going to then lick up all that honey um, that perhaps isn't a good thing to happen there, Mark. So I, I I tend not to, I can't remember the last time I've used the honey, but I have um, other products that people have used apart from straight saline or variation on your your your, your um, fluids like Hartman's fluids and the isotonic type fluids or um is uh, also dilute chlorhexidine is sometimes used um, and sometimes I've even gone with some of the ear preparations, Mark, um, the basic ear cleaners with, with some of the smaller marsupialized holes um, and the products that we have in Australia, that the trade name ones that I've used, are ones called OT Clean and um, Oto Flush and those types of ones, Mark, which is straight ear cleaner um, and I think they have a bit of an astringent effect as well, and they they adjust the pH in that region. But uh, I tend not to use it on the larger marsupialized wounds with them. Um, and Brendan, the other me, thing, I was just yeah. lead you, uh, lead you in a particular direction. I was wondering um, with when you send them home after you've done uh, the marvelous surgery that you do, do you um uh, is there um, other medications that you uh, besides the, the physical cleaning what else do they go home with 
Yeah, well, the obvious ones there are, well, the first one is the antibiotics and we do put them on the systemic antibiotics and we tend to go with um, injectable penicillin and the procaine penicillins um, and and with most of these cases that we've marsupialized a wound, um, my sort of standard dose is, around, is every two day, every two days they have an injection of the injectable penicillin. I think the studies are a little bit rubbery, Mark. There's not much out there as far as, and although lots of people use different dose rates for the penicillins, um, um, how much you should use and the pharmacodynamics of it in rabbits is still a bit up in the air and we need more information on that. So there is lots of variations on the dose rates to use. So they go home on the um, on the antibiotic. Um, but also, yeah, pain relief, Mark, as usual, pain relief, pain relief, pain relief, and a, a fair number of these marsupialized ones these days, Mark, I do put a fentanyl patch on them um, as um, for those first few days as well as um, usually fairly um, decent doses of meloxicam um, is sort of the standard treatment I'd use. Is there anything else you put them on there, Mark, as well? No, no, you've, you've um, mirrored the techniques that we use. We love the uh, 12 microgram per hour patches cut in half for our rabbits. Um, and uh, I've, got a, I've got an interesting, speaking of the antibiotics, um, many of our listeners will be aware of the reputation for the family of penicillins to cause dysbiosis in rabbits. But I did a bit of a, a, um, a review of our cases um, and we probably use, I don't know, probably one of our first-line antibiotics would be uh, trimethoprim sulfadiazine, um, and we probably are using that more frequently orally. But if I rack up the number of... We've had probably three cases of dysbiosis, I think I found the other day, and um, and they were all to do with... Um, orally administered TMPS and uh, the penicillins that we um, that we dispense, um, that we uh, um, administer. I, I'm touching wood right now. We haven't had a dysbiosis case with penicillin. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, we certainly don't use oral penicillins. We use an injectable um, for them. Um, the oral penicillins in rabbits aren't aren't a very good idea, are they, Mark? Well, that, that's the, because the oral penicillins are the best way to cause dysbiosis. As yes, and not not only dysbiosis, probably death as well. <laughs> if 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 um, if we're unlucky um, or or um, use it for a fair period of time. So, yeah, the antibiotics, um, analgesia, what else do we do? Um, we're flushing it. We're getting them back every every few days, if not once or twice a week. Um, and if things have gone to plan and, and we've been lucky enough to remove the source of that um, osteomyelitis in that rabbit dental case, then um, that my supervisor will close over, won't it, Mark? In, in remarkably quickly in some of them, like you sort of hinted at, within a week or two, um, it's starting to close over. And um, we may have got away with um, treating that particular abscess, although I've, I've had rabbits that um, I have a successful marsupialization and then years later they develop a another abscess um, somewhere else on the face um, relating to it, a completely different dental arcade, unfortunately. Um, and choosing the ones to marsupialize, Mark, I, I think it's a bit like what we mentioned in the previous rabbit dental podcast that we did. Um, you need to be a little bit careful because these are often really severely osteo 
myelitic cases and if we're dealing with the mandibular region especially that I may not be jumping in there and being particularly aggressive with them early on if I think on the radiographs we have a a mandible that's already eaten away pretty drastically and then we have this thin capsule um, with an abscess inside it that if we go in there and remove that um, capsule and we attack it like Brendan says and um, we try and remove those tooth roots um, that are causing the problem or teeth um, we end up with a whole mandible that um, just crumbles as we're doing the surgery so um, and then we've got a difficult situation to deal with um, with them so with those ones if I think that the surgery is going to result in that mandible falling apart I do put them on the injectable penicillins for several weeks and the pain relief with the aim of it stabilizing a little bit before we then jump in and do the surgery Um, what do you think about that process Mark do you do something like that or do you get in there quickly I'm always in just so much fear having had several times in my youthful exuberance uh excitedly debriding away and then reaching that point where you do find you develop a mandibular fracture it just breaks your heart so um so i am uh just like you a little bit wary i do regularly take radiographs before we go in and do this but i can't tell you they they make me obviously more scared the the more that um that i can see that mandible eaten away lytic by the the uh, abscess but i can't tell you that there's a pattern you know a certain thinness and then i definitely are going to break them there's some the ones that are fractured um I, i honestly didn't expect that they would looking at the radiograph so um it is as you say wise to um maybe spend ones that uh, are really extensive, maybe spend a bit of time before decreasing the reactivity of the bone around the actual abscess and hopefully stabilising it a bit. Yes, and there's certainly those that it's such a mess in there, even with um, the thought of trying to stabilise it, that you don't think you're going to get there and you need to have that discussion with the owner that, hey, this thing is not surgical and we don't have any good quality of life for that animal and um, we haven't got too many places to go with it so I think it's always important that you know sometimes you have to stop that we can't um, you know perform a miracle on some of these because there's such a mess in there with them yeah so any other final comments Mark before we close for the week no I think you've covered everything Brenna we've been punchy and we're done we're done see you all next week Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Vet Gurus.